the morning to be reading Exodus 25, 1 through 9, 28, 1 through 3, and 29, 44 through 46. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel, that they take for me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him. You shall receive the contribution for me. And this is a contribution that you shall receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine, fine linen, goat's hair, tanned rams, skins, goat skins, acai wood, oil for the lamp, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, onyx and stones, and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. Then bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons with them, from among the people of Israel, to serve me as priests. Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ishmael, and you shall make holy garments for Aaron and your brother, for holy, for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful, whom I have filled with the spirit of skill, that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell amongst the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Thank you, Shana. Well, it's good to be back, and you'll notice half of my family is missing this morning, as was prayed for. Um, half of my family's home with a cold. So, again, and Leah, it's developed into a sinus infection, so she's feeling pretty miserable. Again, you, nowadays, if you're sick with anything respiratory, she's been poked and prodded. It's not COVID. It's not influenza. It's definitely just a cold and a sinus infection. So, but they are home recovering, so obviously we do appreciate your prayers. So, and it is good to be back. So, we missed being with you last week, but again, so excited to hear what happened and so excited to watch the live stream and to be able to see and uh, as you join together in worship. Well, today we did shorten up. There's five chapters that we're going to look at a, a, an overview of, but Shana read for us selections. Selections from that overview that will inform uh, what we're looking at today. But as we start, I want to tell you the story about two young boys. Uh, there, there were two boys, and they were brothers. And they were pretty close in age. And as boys at that age are, they were known for getting in trouble. And they often were doing things that they shouldn't or going places they shouldn't and exasperating their mom all the time. And so one day the mom had just had it. She had it up to here, and she didn't know what else to do. So she grabbed the older of the boys by the hand. She dragged him out the front door, down the street, into the local church. And there, she went to the pastor's office, and she planted him in the pastor's office and told the pastor he needed to talk to her son. And so the pastor, an older man, imposing, leaned across his large wooden desk, and he looked this young boy in the eye, and he said to this young boy, Where is God? Now, the young boy didn't know how to respond to that, so he just kind of, kind of stared back in terrified amazement. And the pastor leaned a little more farther forward and said, Where is God? 
And again, the boy just didn't even know how to respond. And finally, a pastor actually got up out of his seat and leaned across the desk and he said, Where is God? And at that, the boy jumped out of the seat. He ran out of the pastor's office. He ran back down the street, in the front door, up the stairs, into his younger brother's room, slammed the door behind him, and he said, Billy, Billy, we are in trouble now. God is missing and they're blaming it on us. Where is God? Where is God? I mean, how would you answer that? You know, back in 1990, some of us remember Bette Midler saying, God is watching us. God is watching us. God is watching us from a distance. Is that where he is? Where is God? Is he at a a distance from us, just watching us? You know, not according to today's passage. According to today's passage, God doesn't intend to remain at a distance. God's great desire throughout time has been not to stay at a distance, but to live amongst His people. Now, you see, that's why God delivered His people from slavery in Egypt, so that He might live amongst them. This passage that Shana read for us today, in fact, the final passage that she read, summarizes not only this section of Exodus, but really offers us an excellent summary of the entire book of Exodus. You know, so Exodus 29, verse 44, summarizes this section of Exodus well. I will consecrate the tent of meeting, which is the tabernacle, and the altar, Aaron, and also his sons, the priests, I will consecrate to serve me as priests. So this section is all about the tabernacle and the priests. The the consecrating and the setting apart of them so that God could dwell amongst his people. And and that reason is explained in verses 45 and 46. He goes on to say, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. See, these, these verses, really, verses 45 and 46, offer us what I think is a great summary of the entire book of Exodus. We have answered what God did, why He did it, who He is, and how His people should respond to it. It covers all the bases. What He did, He brought them out of Egypt. Why did He do it? So that He could dwell amongst them. Who is He? I'm the Lord, their God. And how should His people respond? No. Not just cognitively but volitionally know in obedience, respond in obedience, that I am the Lord your God. So God has brought them out of Egypt. Everything that we've studied so far, everything that we've learned as we've been studying together through the book of Exodus, it is for this purpose. This is why the Lord now gives Moses five long chapters of instructions with about the construction of the tabernacle, and the consecrating of the priests. The construction of the tabernacle and the consecrating of the priests. It is for the purpose that he might dwell amongst them. And actually, at the very end of the first section that Shana read for us, Exodus 25, verse 8, he summarizes, Let them make me a sanctuary. Why? That I may dwell in their midst. So where is God? Where is God? God's not just watching us from a distance. 
the Lord desires to be in the very midst of His people. The problem is that that's no small thing. You see, the problem that has to be overcome is, how can a holy God live in the midst of an unholy people? Holiness is a fundamental characteristic of God. Just like God is just and God is love, God is holy. He's perfectly, completely set apart from sin. And because God is perfect and holy, His very being recoils at everything that is not holy. You know, just as in scientifically, when matter comes in contact with antimatter because of their very nature, they're destroyed. So the holy God, when he contacts the unholiness of sin, the unholy is destroyed. God is not destroyed, but the unholy is destroyed because of the very nature of God's holiness and the very nature of unholiness. Note that this is an affect, not an effect. I just want to make a distinction here. This is an affect with an A. It's not an emotion or a temper tantrum. God's not irrationally, irritably, capriciously angry, so sin's destroyed. This is an effect with an E. It's a consequence, a result of God's holiness. The natural consequence of the holy God coming into contact with the unholiness of sin is wrath. The sin is destroyed. So then how can a holy God live in the midst of an unholy people without destroying them. Without them being consumed because of His holiness. So understanding this and understanding that God wants to dwell with His people, the answer is the tabernacle and the priesthood. He gives description of the construction of the tabernacle and the consecration of the priesthood in this section. The majority of really the second half of this book of Exodus, the majority of it is first description and instructions, and then in just a little while, we're going to hear those description and instructions enacted, actually done. And that's the majority of the second half of this book. Why? Because the detail is because this is about God preparing a way for Him to dwell amongst His people. And the Lord goes into such detail because the design of the building and the clothing of the priests are all meant to teach His people something. The the, the design and the detail that we have is meant to reveal something of God's character and what it means to have a relationship with Him. And so, what do we learn? What do we learn? Now, all the specific dimensions and details truly doesn't make for interesting reading for us today which is why I only had Shana read for us just a portion. But I want us to take note of some of the important details and pull those out here from this account about the tabernacle and the priestly garments and so that we can understand what does this reveal to us about God's character and about the relationship that He wants to have with us today. So we need to begin by noting the order in which the instructions were given. If you're going to give instructions for the building of a, of, a, of a tent or a building, generally you start with the building, wouldn't you? But that's not where these instructions start. If we were to look at these instructions, we would find that the first set of instructions the Lord gives to Moses are for the ark. So really, this is the story of when Moses built the ark, not to be confused with Noah. 
But the fact is, Noah's ark was a large wooden boat to save him and the animals, while his Moses ark was a wooden box overlaid with pure gold. In fact, this ark became very familiar to all of us well, who are alive. In 1981, when the movie Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark was released, based on a true story. Thanks, Kev. The Ark of the Covenant, or the Testimony, was to reside in the most holy place in the tabernacle, within the Holy of Holies. And this golden box, the wooden box covered in gold, would hold the covenant representing God's relationship with His people. And on that box, actually, as you see depicted here, was to be what was called the mercy seat, or the atonement cover, with two cherubim, with their outstretched wings reaching towards one another. Now, cherubim are special angels that are mentioned almost a hundred times in the Old Testament, first mentioned all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, as they're guarding the way back into the Garden of Eden once humanity had sinned and been exiled from the Garden. And unlike all the other angels that we meet in Scripture, cherubim aren't messengers. Now, the word angel actually means messenger. And so, God often sent angels, messengers to His people, and we see that throughout Scripture. But the cherubim weren't messengers. They were always, we find them in God's presence. Somehow denying access by anything that is unholy into the holy presence of God. And so, the presence of the covenant and the cherubim here with the ark both point us to the very presence of God. Friends, the details about the ark are given to us first because the ark is the most important thing in the whole tabernacle. For upon the mercy seat is said to be the very place where God would dwell and meet with His people. Exodus 25, verse 22, the Lord says, There I will meet with you, And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. So the Lord starts by giving instructions for the ark first, because this is the first place. First things first. This is the very center. This is the place where the Lord's going to dwell amidst His people and meet with His people. It's the truth that we find celebrated in Israel's worship. If we turned to the Psalms, we would find this celebrated. Psalm 80, verse 1 declares, Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth. The psalmist also celebrates in Psalm 99, verse 1, The Lord reigns, let the people tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim, let the earth Where is the Lord? He's enthroned upon the mercy seat, seated between the cherubim. The Lord is in the midst of His people. And friends, we need to understand that having the holy God dwell in the midst of an unholy people is no trifling matter. In fact, in the book of Leviticus, the Lord sternly warned Moses to warn the priests. Leviticus 16.2 Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that's on the ark so that he may not die. For I will appear in a cloud over the mercy seat. One does not just waltz into the presence of a holy God lest because of their unholiness they be destroyed. 
However, the holy God, so that he might continue to dwell amongst his people, made a way that once a year, once a year on the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, which this year in 2021 occurred back September 15th through September 16th, on that day, once a year, atonement would be made for his people's sins. And that is the day of Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. That was the one day of the year that the high priest might draw near to the Lord. The one day of the year that the high priest might enter into the Holy Holies. Why? So that he could make atonement for the people's sins. And as described in the rest of Exodus 16, there are various sacrifices that were offered. Blood sprinkled upon the mercy seat. And from that place, with the sprinkling of blood on the cover of the atonement, the Lord dispensed mercy to his people. So it is that Leviticus 16.30 declares, For on this day, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. So how can a holy God live in the midst of an unholy people? The blood of a sacrifice that cleanses. The mercy then flows forth from the mercy seat, from the atonement cover. Friends, the ark is listed first because this is the center of Israel's relationship with the Lord. The Lord gave Moses more details and he worked outward from the center. The ark is the center. And in fact, one of the things that you'd notice if you read through all of these details is that the closer the rooms and furnishings were to the ark, the more valuable the materials were made with. The things in the Holy of Holies and the Ark itself, they were made of pure gold or plated with gold. And then as you moved away from the Ark, things were made of silver. And then as you got even further, they were made of bronze. So the very center, the most important, illustrated, it's indicated by instruction, indicated by the construction, and indicated by the composition. This is the most important thing in the temple. The most important place, the ark, the holy of holies, where God dwelt and met with his people. However, as we continue to read this passage, we'd find that God's concern was not just for the construction of the tabernacle, but for the consecration of the priests. When we come to the middle, about the middle, of the instructions that the Lord gave to Moses there on the mountain, we find the consecration of the priests in Exodus 28. And this is how he starts. 28 verses 2 and 3. You shall make holy garments for Aaron, the priest, your brother, for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful whom I filled with a spirit of skill, that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. So it says here that the priests, the priests were to be robed in holy garments for glory and beauty. Did you catch that? Glory and beauty. Now, the priests weren't wearing garments to show off their own beauty. They were clothed in garments that would reflect the very radiance and beauty and glory of the Lord to the people. The priests were clothed in such a way that to behold them in their shining garments was to glimpse just a, just a little peek, a hint of the glory of the Lord Himself. The priests who stood in the very presence of the Lord came then to the people as representatives, a revelation of the Lord's glory to the people. They came clothed in glory and beauty, representing that to the people. 
And we know that Moses himself was the ultimate expression of this truth because in just a few chapters, we're going to read that Moses came down from the mountain having met with the Lord. And he was changed. Exodus 34 verse 29 says, When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he'd been talking with God. Moses shone. He reflected the glory and the beauty of the Lord to the people. And we find that the priests were to be clothed in such a way as to reflect and to signify the glory and the beauty of the Lord to the people. So, the priests represented God in His glory to the people. But that's not all they did. They also represented the people back to the Lord. One prominent feature of the priestly garments is the breastplate. And if you look, we have an illustration of it there. There you go. There's the priestly garments and there's a breastplate. And if you look at the illustration, you notice this jeweled breastplate. Specifically, there were two onyx stones, one on each shoulder. And then there were 12 different stones on the breast, four rows of three stones. And they had special significance. Listen to the explanation of the onyx stones that were on the shoulders as given in Exodus 28. You shall take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel. Six of their names on one stone, and the names of the remaining six on the other stone, in order of their birth. As a jeweler engraves signets, so shall you engrave the two stones with the names of the sons of Israel. You shall enclose them in settings of gold filigree. And you shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before their Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. And if we continued reading in that same chapter, we'd find that each of the twelve stones on the breastplate was also engraved with a different name of one of the sons of Israel. So literally, the priests bore the names of the people to the Lord. Verse 12, Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. The priest represented the people to the Lord, and the priest also represented the glory of the Lord back to the people. So how can a holy God live in the midst of an unholy people? There had to be a mediator. There had to be someone who went between the Lord and his people, revealing God to his people and representing the people to God. One who could make atonement for the people's sin so that they might receive mercy. And as such, we find the Lord here giving instructions for the construction of the tabernacle and for the sacrifices so that he might dwell and also the consecration of the priests who were the mediators between God and humanity. So where is God? He was there. He was amongst his people. But we find that he was there incompletely and and imperfectly because of sin. There still remained separation between him and his people. He was there, but there was still separation because of his people's sin. And as we read the instructions for the, the construction of the tabernacle, we find that, in fact, it was a thick curtain. 
that separated the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant, where God was said to dwell, from the rest of the tabernacle. There was a thick curtain, a veil, through which people could not pass that separated them from God's presence. Exodus 26, verses 31 through 33 says, You shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twisted linen. It shall be made with cherubim, skillfully worked into it. And you shall hang it on four pillars of acacia overlaid with gold, with hooks of gold on four bases of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the clasps and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. And the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy. So God was amongst His people, friends, but He was still separate. And only once a year, only one person, the high priest, could enter into the Holy of Holies and truly experience the presence of God. And only then He might enter by the blood of a sacrifice. And more than that, the glory of the Lord could not be directly seen by the people. It could only be represented by the shining garments of the priests who went into the presence of the Lord. So where is the Lord? He's in the midst of His people, but it's imperfect and it's incomplete. But church, hear the Gospel. Hear the good news. Something greater than the tabernacle has come. Someone greater than any human high priest has come. And now truly, you and I might know that God is with us. The disciple John opens his gospel with a prologue, an an introduction. And in it, he refers to Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, as the Word. And this is what he writes in John 1.14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen His glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Friends, in the Greek, what John literally writes is, the Word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. The Word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. And John writes, what happened when that happened? We saw the glory of God. Not just shining garments, we saw the glory of God the Father when He tabernacled amongst us. He is the fulfillment of the tabernacle, the fulfillment of the priestly garment and the priestly role. The priest could only represent, maybe reflect just a faint glimmer of the beauty of the Father to the people. But Jesus came as the perfect and complete revelation of the glory of the Father. John writes, We have seen His glory. You might remember that there was an incident during Jesus' ministry when Jesus took three of His disciples, Peter, James, and John, and He brought them up high on a mountain. And while He was there in Matthew 17, 2, it says, Jesus was transfigured before them, and His face shone like the sun, and His clothes became white as light. In that moment, the veil was lifted and the glory of God was seen in the face of Jesus Christ. Friends, when Moses' face glowed, it said that it glowed for a while, but then it faded and diminished. When the glory of the Lord was seen in the beauty of the priestly garments, it was but a fraction. But this was the fullness of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Christ is the glory of God the Father revealed to us so that we might see, so that we might know God. 
But friends, how is that possible? How is it possible for us and unholy people to come into the presence of a holy God and yet not be destroyed? Friends, it's possible for us now because of the blood of a sacrifice. The high priest alone once a year could pass beyond the veil through the curtain, into the most holy place, into the very presence of God, and then he could only come by and with the blood of an animal sacrifice. However, Jesus came to tabernacle amongst us, not just to reveal the glory of God the Father, but to open a way so that we might be fully with God the Father. Jesus Christ entered into the holy place, not with the blood of an animal sacrifice, but by the shedding of his own blood upon the cross. The author of the New Testament book of Hebrews explains this to us in chapter 9, verses 11 through 12. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats or calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Jesus Christ offered not the blood of animals, but his own blood. Jesus Christ is the great high priest who offered not only the perfect and final sacrifice, but that sacrifice was himself. And so it is, friends, that when Jesus Christ died upon the cross, shedding his blood for the forgiveness of your sins and mine, Matthew records in his gospel that this is what happened at the moment of Christ's death. Matthew 27, verse 51. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. Friends, the veil, the veil that is described here as thick, made of intertwined woven fabric, some speculating that the curtain might have been inches thick, And more than that, torn in two from top to bottom, the curtain, when you read the dimensions, was 30 feet high. Friends, no human hand could have torn the veil that separated the most holy place where God's presence dwelt from us. But that veil was rent in two with the death of Jesus Christ. Because, friends, now we can boldly approach God because a sacrifice has been made. We can have a relationship with God because of Jesus Christ and His death upon the cross and His resurrection from the dead. Now we can truly declare and live and experience God is with us. This is the gospel. This is the good news. The author of Hebrews concludes his argument in chapter 10, verses 19 through 22. Therefore, brothers and sisters, Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and the living way that He opened for for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Friends, this is the good news. This is the gospel. Where is God? Where is God? Because of Jesus Christ, God is with us and we might be with Him. The veil is torn. The glory of God has been revealed. The presence of the Lord in Jesus Christ is the one who tabernacled amongst us 
And now we might draw near to God. We can enter into the very holy place where God dwells by the blood of Jesus. By the sacrifice made, our sins can be forgiven and we can have a relationship with this holy God. And friends, if you don't know Him, if you've not entered a relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ, what stops you? What stops you from trusting Him here and now? today. Because as the author of Hebrews encourages, draw near. We can now draw near to God. And friends, what we're about to do coming to this table is a remembrance of that. We can draw near to God. This is a table of His presence. A table that remembers Christ's sacrifice. A table where we receive what we most need. Mercy and grace. This table answers the question for us, where is God? God has tabernacled amongst us in His Son, Jesus Christ. He, by His incarnation, He revealed God's glory to us. By His death, He opened the way to God's presence for us. By His resurrection, He leads us into relationship with God and life everlasting. This table testifies, God is with us. The question is, by faith, have you responded? And are you now in Him. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for this table. Thank You for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And thank You that we can now draw near. That You are with us and we might now be with You and in You by faith. Father, help us to trust And help us to draw near and find the mercy and the forgiveness and the grace that we need. In Jesus' name we ask.